Thanks, Tanya. Wouldn't that have been an amazing conversation to be part of? To, um, to have that unfold and explained to us by Jesus is an incredible bit of information. It's life-changing. It changes the way we think about ourselves, about the world around us, about the people around us. Um, it would have been an amazing experience. A couple of things I just want to make you aware of before we move on. Uh, firstly, uh, you won't be able to see Chris about Sunday school this morning because he's preaching in 2J. And, um, and so, but, but please uh, contact him during the week. In fact, Chris will have the bridge during the week. Um, I'm going to be on leave this week. Um, my girls are on holiday, so I'm going to spend a bit of time with them and um, do some fun family things with them. Um, so if you have any uh, questions, contact Chris. He will still be here. Um, but one of the things that um, we, I want to let you know about before I go on leave is that in the first week of next school term, we're starting a, a whole church Bible study and preaching series. And it's based on the idea of the pursuit of holiness. Now, these are the study guys that we've got prepared to go with it. If you are not able to make it to a home group, if you, and you would still like to grab hold of one of these to work through it during the week, the, the sermons will be picking up on one passage out of the ones that are covered in the study guide and expanding on it. But this will take you into more places than what we can do in a sermon on a Sunday morning. And so uh, even if you're at home uh, watching online right now and you're not able to make it in, if you email the church office, I'll make sure that uh, a, a copy of this gets sent out to you and um, you can follow through and, and continue through that. So our hope is that each of the, the home groups, the Bible study groups, uh, will be able to work through this and discuss things. So if you're not part of a home group at the moment, I really encourage you to uh, look into that, to join one. I know there are many happening on different nights, different locations, different types of demographics. I'm sure we'll be able to find a spot for you, um, particularly for this next term while we look at this together as a church. Shall we pray quickly and uh, then we'll make a start on this. Father, we thank you for um, the wisdom and the truth that we have in Scripture. We thank you for the words of Jesus that we've just read. And we pray, Father, that those ring, words will ring in our hearts and minds as we look at the Apostles' Creed. We pray that your Spirit would teach us, help us understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, there we go, too far. All right, there you have what is called the Apostles' Creed. Have you heard of the Apostles' Creed before? Put your hand up if you have heard of it. Okay. Now, you might think it's a bit strange to be preaching about a creed because, I mean, aren't creeds something from the dim, dark past that when uh, people used to recite things and, and didn't understand what they were reciting week after week and, and weren't they just doing it because that's what they were told to do? I know that's what I thought. There was something in me that pushed back against the creeds and the prayers that are recited from prayer books because I thought they were stale and out of date. I thought they fed a culture of legalism 
And I want my relationship with God to be alive and fresh. I want my prayers to be spontaneous and from my heart, not read from a book. That's someone else's words, not mine. That was my thinking. So why would I preach on the Apostles' Creed? Surely our time would be better used uh, looking at a passage of Scripture instead, such as the one that we read just a minute ago. But my hope this morning is that I'll convince you that there's benefits to your faith to be found in the creeds, particularly in this one, the Apostles' Creed. We need what this creed has to offer just as much today. In fact, possibly even more than when it was written. Because we live in a world that has undermined the truth so much that it's hard to know which way is up. In fact, I think if I was to say to you, this way is up, it wouldn't be hard for me to find someone who would argue that, no, that way's up. That's the kind of world that we live in today. Truth has been made into a relative concept. It's in the eye of the beholder. What's true for you is not necessarily true for me. What's important is that we acknowledge each individual person's truth so that we validate them as a person. And I blame all of this on the AFL, (laughs) on football. I mean, whose idea was it to give people a point for missing the goal? What's the idea of that? You've got two sticks there, and if they miss that goal, you give it... What what is a behind? You missed the goal, fella. You don't get a point for missing. A goal is a goal. The truth is the truth. There is a right and there is a wrong. But the human heart has forgotten who God is and that he's the source of truth, the ultimate judge of what's right and wrong. And now we're in a place where there are so many versions of the truth that we can choose any truth that we want to believe. The Apostles' Creed was written at a time when people were saying things about God that weren't true. It was written as a summary of the truth about God. It was about who God is and exactly what we need to believe as the gospel. And by pinning down the truth, this creed provides clarity for us in a world of very muddy water. So here are some truths about ourselves that get in the way of us wanting to hear the truth. The Bible tells us in Jeremiah 17:9 that the heart is deceitful above all things and without and beyond cure. Who can understand it? That's the truth. We will believe anything our heart wants us to believe. And the more we keep telling ourselves that we feel the truth rather than think the truth, the more we're going to be led astray. Have you noticed that we changed our language from I think this is right to I feel this is right. But God says in verse 10 that I, the Lord, search the heart 
and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. God is the one who determines truth. He's the one who will ultimately stand before as our judge. So what we think doesn't really matter, does it? It's what God says that matters because he's the one who will be the judge. So here are a few more truths about us. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. That's the truth. Another one is to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the truth of the word. It's important for us to actually work at trying to understand what we read in the scriptures correctly rather than twisting it because of what's in here so that this doesn't have to change. Another truth is that we are called to stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Picture yourself without that belt of truth standing before God. Knowing me, my pants would fall and it would be embarrassing. We need the truth because ultimately we will be embarrassed to stand before God if we have not listened to it. The reason why the Apostles' Creed matters to us today is that it has pinned down the truth. And that's, it's a truth that's found all the way through Scripture and it's pulled it into a clear statement of who God is, who we are and what the kingdom of God is all about. It contains, in a nutshell, the gospel that Jesus preached. This is what we need to believe by faith and be saved. In fact, that is the way it was used when it was first written. It was used as a tool to teach people, as an evangelistic tool, to teach them, hey, you want to know how to be saved? This is what you need to believe. And it was used as a statement, a profession of faith. For when people were baptised, it contains the essential truth around which we, as a collection of people, can have unity. So let's look at what it says. Today I want to look at the sections that are at the beginning of the creed and the section at the end. And... Um, uh, because they spell out for us who God is and who we are and what the kingdom of God's all about. And then next week, Chris is going to look at the bit in the middle that spells out how we go about being, uh, actually entering into God's kingdom. So the first thing you'll notice is that it's been deliberately written in first person. It uses the word, I believe, not we believe. 
That's because of its intention to be a profession of faith, to be a profession of personal saving faith. It's not a corporate statement of faith that we agreed to live with but secretly hold different opinions on. To read this aloud is to say personally, I believe this is true. You have to make a personal decision to accept that it's true right from the start. None of this, I reserve the right to hold my own opinions in this. This is not about intellectual belief. You have to believe this with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. You might know some people who believe in UFOs. A person who believes in the idea of UFOs does not necessarily spend their life looking for aliens on earth. It's an intellectual agreement with a concept. A concept that unidentified flying objects could exist. Likewise, in America, where people aren't legally obliged to to vote in elections, you'll find some people who believe in democracy, but they've never actually participated in it by voting. They agree with the idea of having the right to vote, but they never act on it. They like the idea of it, that's all. Sadly, you'll find people inside many churches in Australia who agree with the idea of God. They'll agree that God is real or could be. But they have their own ideas about what he's like. But believing in the idea of God is not enough. The Bible says that even Satan believes in God. In fact, Satan knows him from personal experience. He's met him face to face and spoken with him often. But that doesn't stop him from rebelling against God and leading armies of angels against him, filling people's minds with lies about God to take them to hell with him too. You see, sin is not just a head problem of not agreeing to the existence of God. It's also a heart problem of not wanting his authority in our lives. And so when this creed was written originally in Greek, the phrase, I believe in God, is more correctly rendered, I'm believing into God. It says that more than just believing in God, I'm acting out my belief by living in commitment to God in trust and relationship. I accept who he is, not just that he is. And who he is demands that I'm radically changed on the inside. The second thing that you'll notice is that the creed states belief in three persons of God. God is a Trinitarian God. He is one being with three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At the time this was written, there were people claiming to know the truth about Jesus, that he wasn't who the apostles said he was. 
Gnosticism was growing in popularity because they claimed to hold special knowledge of the truth. The name Gnosticism comes again from the Greek word for knowing, gnosis. And they taught that there are only two parts to God. There is the the part who created the heavens and the earth. And there is the one who was a spiritual being who inhabited the man, Jesus. They claimed that the spirit, Christ, inhabited the man, Jesus, from the time he was baptised until just before his suffering at the crucifixion. So that it was the man, Jesus, who died on the cross, not the spirit, God, Christ. And the purpose of this spirit inhabiting the man, Jesus, was to teach humanity the way to ascension, the way to becoming pure, so that we can leave our bodies behind and live in the perfect spiritual state forever. It was a dualism of physical and uh, physical being bad and spiritual being good. The ultimate goal of humanity was to escape these physical bodies that were corrupted, to free ourselves from them so that we ascend to a higher spiritual state. And you see it still being played out today in the idea that our ultimate destination is heaven where we'll float around on clouds playing harps. Last week, Chris made the point that heaven is not our ultimate destination. God has something much greater in plan for us, which we'll get to in a bit. Right now, we're focused on the truth. God is one being, but he's three persons. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, notice I'm using both names because it's all the one being, was born fully human because of the work of the Holy Spirit in a physical woman's body. Both kingdoms came together in the body of Christ. The kingdom of heaven was brought together with the kingdom of this earth. The kingdom of heaven came in the form of a man who was also the king of an earthly kingdom, the king of the Jews. We're told in Mark 1.15 that he said when he was baptised, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus was fully God and fully human. And we see in Jesus Christ the reality of God's future kingdom where two diametrically opposed kingdoms are brought into unity, just the same way as what the Gentiles and the Jews were brought together in his church. That is our ultimate destination. That is the perfected future kingdom God has in store for us, not disembodied spirits floating on clouds. In the picture painted in Revelation 21, we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So last week, Chris pointed out that the physical resurrection of Jesus' body matters because it shows us the future kingdom that we'll be part of. Jesus' resurrected body had qualities of both kingdoms. It was physical. It was able to be touched. It was capable of eating real food. And yet it was also spiritual in that it was no longer bound by the laws of physics like our bodies are. It passed through walls to enter into locked rooms. It appeared in one place and then later appeared somehow somewhere else without walking from one to the other. Jesus' resurrected body shows us what God's future kingdom will be like. It will be the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth brought together under the rule of Jesus Christ. Transformed humans and angels living together in the presence of Christ. And it will be an amazing, incredible place. And so we can say that we believe in all that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Fully God and fully man. Not just a man possessed by a spirit God. He was so much more. He was there at the beginning. He He was the word who was with God and who was God. Through whom and for whom everything was created. And he came to earth. And even though he'd been in relationship with his people since creation, they didn't recognise him as that same God. So they crucified him. But it's through him that we're saved. Believing in who he is has to radically change how we see ourselves and then how we live. Because genuine belief will bring a commitment of faith as we trust in who he is and what he's done. Anything less is nothing more than the same intellectual acknowledgement to God's existence that even Satan holds. And that does not bring salvation. The final thing I want us to notice about this creed is that it has to do with how we live in the world today. We know who God is. We've got a picture of what his future kingdom will look like. So we know where we're heading. That's what that passage that we read right at the beginning was all about. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare it. We can know where Jesus went by looking at his resurrection. 
But what do we believe about the here and the now? What do we believe about life today? Well, firstly, I believe in the Holy Spirit. He's the one sent by the Son to help us live right now. And so in John 14, we read that Jesus said this, If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help and, to, and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. God's son, Jesus, gave us the task of obedience. And in Matthew, we read that Jesus called people to hear the words of his preaching and to obey him. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that really hard. Actually, I think I do know about you. All the evidence points to the fact that all of us find it really hard to obey what Jesus has told us to do. Which is why we need the help of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who turns the light on so that we can see that we actually need saving. He helps us to understand our need for Jesus. And he continues to teach us to understand what we read in the Bible. He's that quiet, still voice deep inside us that speaks directly to our own souls, poking us where we need to change and teaching us how to change and then giving us the faith and the strength to make that change. He's the one who keeps pulling us back to the truth because he's the spirit of truth. And because the spirit of truth that comes to us from God is the spirit of truth, we know that truth comes from God. If that's how we're truth, if the spirit of truth has come from God, we know that truth comes only from God, not from us. And if the truth was really already inside us, we wouldn't even need God's Holy Spirit. We can stop searching because the truth is not out there. The truth has been given to us. And the real struggle is the fight within us to accept that truth, to submit to it. Because it's not something our hearts naturally want to do. Part of the truth is that when we're saved, we become part of God's Catholic Church. That's Catholic with a little c, by the way, not Catholic with a capital C. It's not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. The word Catholic means universal. So I believe in God's universal Catholic Church church that incorporates people from all races, male and female, young or old, black, white, purple. It's the belief that Jesus is not just our personal saviour. He's the ruler of a kingdom. 
It's so easy to forget that because our modern Western culture is so fixated on the importance of the individual. It says, you are what matters. Your truth, your rights, your identity. But the Trinitarian God that we believe in is a God of community. When he created the cosmos, he said, let us make it. God is one being, in perfect unity, consisting of three distinct persons. When he saves us, he invites us into relationship, into that unity, into that perfect relationship of unity. A relationship of distinct persons so motivated by love that they move and act as one being. A relationship of communion, of sharing intimate thoughts and feelings at a spiritual level. But he doesn't just invite us into that relationship as individuals. He puts us in relationship with each other. And he calls us to reflect the relationship that is himself to the world around us. He calls us to forgive each other, to protect that relationship with the same sacrificial grace and forgiveness that he's shown us as individuals. That's what the kingdom of God looks like in the now, but not yet. Belonging to God's community on this earth declares the future kingdom of God at the same time as pointing people to the sacrificial death to self that Jesus modelled for us. Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, these are not intellectual concepts for us to agree with. They are the truth for us to believe in so deeply, so deeply that it changes who we are on the inside and it affects how we live together. The Apostles' Creed sets out for us the only truth we need. The truth around which we unite. Not the world's kind of truth that relies on brainwashing and uniformity. The world uses violence to force us to either agree with them or keep our mouths shut. The Gospel doesn't demand uniformity but it does expect unity. And so make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. What we see in the Apostles' Creed is the truth of the Gospel, the real truth, the whole truth, a description of the true spiritual reality behind our physical world. Believe it or don't. Doesn't stop it from being the truth. But I want to make very clear today to you the command that Jesus gave when he walked the earth. He said, The time has come. The kingdom of God is now here. Repent and believe, and you will be saved. Be changed by the truth. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the work that people put in under your guidance where you had your hand guiding their hearts and minds to distill the truth that is in Scripture and to put it into this creed. We pray for the work of your Spirit in our own hearts, keeping us focused on that truth, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, no matter what happens around us. And may this creed be a tool that we can use to do that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.